Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's webinar. This is Mark Graben from Kinexus, and I'm very pleased to uh, be hosting today's webinar titled From Ambivalence to Action, Leadership Lessons from Motivational Interviewing. And we are joined by our presenter today, Mark Valenti. I think it's going to be a very, very interesting um, session today. Um, so let me introduce Mark before I'll hand it over to him. I met Mark a couple of years ago. Um, there, there's a bit of overlap in our professional circles related to lean. And especially as I first got introduced um, to this, uh, this field and this practice and, and these mindsets of quote unquote motivational interviewing, which Mark is, is going to talk about um, today. Um, we've had a number of conversations and Mark's been very gracious with his time in, in terms of being a, a coach and a mentor for me as I've tried to learn more um, about these methodologies. Um, but Mark has a background in health systems management human behavior, and patient activation. He enjoys connecting with partners such as the National Board of Medical Examiners with the China Health Coach Program or with Australia's Flinders University on an innovative approach to patient chronic condition self-management. Mark helps others uncover their intrinsic motivation to reach their goals, a very important topic, and his unique teaching framework called Activate Your Audience helps speakers better express their messages. So um, with that, Mark, I'll hand it over to you. Great, thank you so much, Mark. I'm extremely happy to be here and I appreciate the opportunity as always to collaborate. So today, as Mark said, we're gonna be talking about from ambivalence to action, the leadership lessons from motivational interviewing. And it's really about recognizing that people struggle with changing their behavior. Changes seem overwhelming and unreachable. And it's really about as leaders, when we're working with an organization, what is our role to help people change their behavior? So a few logistics, the blueprint for today, we are gonna be talking about motivational interviewing, a brief background on what it is, where does it come from, and what does it have to do with changing behavior and ambivalence? And again, how does it relate to your role as a leader? From a timing perspective, Mark did talk about, we're gonna be doing this presentation part for about 45 minutes with questions at the end. As Mark said, please, Make sure to type in your questions before that. I will be pausing about halfway through for you to ask additional questions, which Mark will sort of pull together and read off. As always, it is up to you if you choose to ask questions or not. And you are not prisoners in front of your computer screen. You are welcome to do whatever it is you normally do during webinars. Feel free to check emails, phones, etc. It's really up to you to decide how much this is relevant to you. And it's up to me to really talk through this and you can figure out what is relevant to you and your work. You're not expected to be a scholar after today's discussion. It really is only less than 45 minutes of different topics, but I'm hoping that you'll find these individual bite-sized pieces of information relevant to your work, figure out how it relates to the rest of the work you do, and maybe there's a two a few tips or tricks afterwards. Uh, I am gonna include my email at the end of this, so you're welcome to reach out to me as well if you would like further information or discussions. As Mark said about the handouts, it is um, something that I will also upload. I'll send it to him to upload. Because the idea behind this is, is as humans, we only really remember about 20% of what we're exposed to at any given time. So you're welcome to go back, of course, and listen again and reference the handouts that I will send to Mark to upload as well. 
And if you'd like to take notes, by all means, you're welcome to do that. There will be a few things uh, posted on LinkedIn related to this. I know that I'm connected to many of you on LinkedIn, so that's an opportunity to communicate as well. The other warning I must say is that this webinar is rated PG. It really means that we may talk about things with human behavior or make pop culture references that may include sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that stuff. So just wanted to forewarn you. I am broadcasting my part of this webinar from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I welcome all of my colleagues in that area, which is a very healthcare based and tech based town. So let's talk about motivational interviewing and specifically what it is not. Motivational interviewing is not the same as motivational speaking. It is not Tony Robbins getting up there and trying to motivate the crowd. It is not the charismatic doctor or the charismatic boss getting up there and trying to inspire people to change. Motivational interviewing is not that. Motivational interviewing is not Matt Foley from Saturday Night Live who is scaring people, scaring kids into making positive decisions or they'll end up like him living in a van down by the river. Motivational interviewing is not about scaring patients, showing them images of ulcers and bad things that could happen to them if they don't manage their condition. Motivational interviewing is not about manipulating people to do things they don't want to do. Motivational interviewing is not therapy. It has its roots in therapy, but it's not about client-focused therapy. Motivational interviewing is not the same as job interviewing. It is not behavioral-based interviewing, although there are some elements of the ways you question in behavioral-based interviewing. Motivational interviewing is simply helping people change. And it gets its name, its framework from motivational interviewing by Bill Miller and Stephen Rolnick. And if you have this book, that's fantastic because this particular book, the third edition came out in 2013. And the good thing about Drs. Miller and Rolnick are that they continuously update this material to reflect the changes in communication and their own um, journey through helping people change. Motivational interviewing really focuses on people who are struggling through ambivalence, people that are keeping current sustained behaviors and thinking about changing. And we're all in states of ambivalence for different things. Just this afternoon, I had to decide, was I gonna drink my protein shake that was, as my colleague said, gray in color, or was I gonna get a delicious salmon salad? So I had to decide which is the one that I wanted to get, and I was in a state of ambivalence. Motivational interviewing is really about focusing on that ambivalence. And it's a guiding style that invites people to examine their own values and behaviors and come up with their own reasons to change. A person who is partnering with another person doesn't try to convince or argue with them. Instead, a person who is using a motivational interviewing framework draws out the other individual's own ideas on how to change. It's a person-centered way to address that natural ambivalence I talked about. The ultimate goal is to promote intrinsic motivation toward endure, enduring behavior change or activation. And it really started in the early 1980s when the MI founders, Bill Miller and Stephen Rolnick, spent time recognizing the value of understanding individuals' behavior before jumping to solutions. And it started in the field of substance use, unhealthy substance use, specifically at the time there was a lot of labels that were put on people who were struggling with alcohol addiction, and they were said to be in states of denial, and a lot of labels were put on them. 
And Bill Miller found that just by listening to people, really trying to understand them as individuals, he found that people were more than their labels. They were living, breathing, breathing people with their own hopes, their own dreams, their own fears. So really, he saw the value in how to connect with people and understand their perspective. There's an excellent article in the American Psychologist Journal called uh, Toward a Theory of Motivational Interviewing by Bill Miller and Gary Rose from 2009. And it really kind of details this in uh, much more information. Of course, you're welcome to read that if you choose. This is, webinar today is really about giving a high-level overview. I'll include some of these references in the documents if you choose to follow up with them. The purpose today is to spend less time on the history and publications, but to kind of break down some of the key concepts and how it applies to the workplace. We talk about the word activation. And activation is really about people doing things without someone looking over their shoulder. It's about people who are living their lives, doing their thing, and doing something because they're intrinsically motivated to do it. A former colleague, Dr. Bruce Block, used to say that healthcare happens in between visits, that 99.9% .9 of the time that people are not in the doctor's office, not in the hospital, they're out there in, the life, in their community, in their life, in the, with their family in the supermarket and they're living their life. That's when healthcare happens. And motivational interviewing is about helping somebody reach their health goals and change their behavior in a meaningful self-managing way. And it's directive toward a particular goal as opposed to traditional client-centered therapy. So when you think about patients, what exactly are we activating them to do? Well, there's lots of things. The goal is to guide them toward this self-management of their own health. And that would include cutting down on cigarettes, cutting down on other unhealthy substances. It would include taking their medications or changing their diet to a more healthy lifestyle. Or if they have certain conditions, monitoring that conditions, like somebody who has a history of heart failure weighing themselves every day. It could be about activating a patient to call the doctor's office whenever they start experiencing symptoms. It could be about getting people to cut down on that Chinese buffet. It could be about somebody who's pregnant taking the prenatal vitamins and going to their doctor's visits. All of this activation is really about that self-realization of somebody's health goals and having them do it without somebody looking over their shoulder. But it's a process. It is the top of the mountain there, and it takes a while to get there. Traditional healthcare focuses on the planning step which there are actually four steps before you get to activation, but planning is really about traditional healthcare. Planning is what most people do when they're leaving the hospital. Everybody at the hospital gives them a bunch of information about discharge information. If they're leaving a doctor's office, they give them an after-visit summary. They dump a lot of information. They plan and say, here, do this. They try to incorporate certain things like a diseased lung, like in the picture there, to say, here's what will happen if you don't follow through with cutting down on smoking. There's a lot of scare tactics out there as well, putting things out there, hoping to basically scare people to change their behavior. There's a lot of creative advertising out there as well, trying to get people noticing and following through with that behavior. And the image on the screen right now is a creative advertising campaign to get people to get their colonoscopy. It was put on the back of bus seats. But ultimately, this doesn't change people's behavior, and they end up not following through with their care or being activated in their own health. And when it comes to the office, when it comes to organizations, we do the same thing with our teams. 
we present them with a lot of information. We give them documents, policies, and procedures, all sorts of great educational material, and we just dump it on them and plan and say, here, do this. And inevitably, people become frustrated and they don't change their behavior. The frontline staff members, those team members, they're just not seeing the value in doing it. And if you do it too much, they end up looking for other jobs. Motivational interviewing is really trying to understand what is the root cause, what is the current condition. And it's trying to understand people and what motivates them without making the assumption and jumping to planning. And it starts from engaging, getting to know somebody for who they are. What are their fears? What are their values? It's trying to understand the current condition and engaging before jumping to that target condition planning. Somehow I think there's something in the lean CQI philosophy that follows the same idea, but it's the same philosophy when applied to people. And to really understand activation, we wanna start with motivation. What starts people getting up in the morning? What gets them out of bed to face the day? And I refer to the book Drive by Daniel Pink. Drive is the surprising truth about what motivates us. And if you're not familiar with this book and this author, he's done a lot of research and interviews and observations to really understand motivation and human drive. And he talks about sort of that first level of drive called the biological drive. And it is similar, as you probably know, to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that basic needs that must be met before any intrinsic motivation is even thought about. And from a biological perspective, we think back to our paleo brain when we used to live out in the woods and in the caves, and we're literally trying to survive every day. And until those basic biological needs, food, shelter, safety are met, then those cavemen, cavewomen can't even think about other changes. But it translates to modern society as well. There's a lot of people out there who are struggling with food, water, shelter, all the social determinants of health, those types of things. And until those needs are met, it's hard for people to think about cutting down on smoking or testing their blood sugar. It relates to the job as well, maybe not as overtly as seen in front of you, where people don't feel like they're actually physically going to be harmed in their job. But how your biological needs relates to your job is if you're worried about getting fired and thus losing your ability to pay for food and water and other services, then your basic biological drive is what you're trying to follow through with. That is your drive every day because you're worried about getting your job, keeping your job. And if you're worried about keeping your job, you're not innovating, you're not coming up with great ideas during staff meetings. If you don't have the tools to do your job day to day, you're stuck in that biological drive because you cannot survive day to day without the tools, whether they're physical tools or whether they're computer access programs or software or electronic health records. Also, when things are unclear, when signage is unclear, and this is an example of on the right, you see a, it says men's room to the left and the women's room is just pointing to the right. The room on the right here is actually the women's room and the room on the left is the men's room. But when signs are unclear, people start to panic, people get worried. And if those needs aren't met and things are clear, then we cannot ever graduate past the biological needs. And when there's a lot of ambiguity and pieces of the puzzle are missing, we end up coming up with our own ideas about what goes in there. And as human beings, we often fear the worst. 
If our boss neglects to answer us an important question in email, then we start thinking, they like me? Are they going to get rid of me tomorrow? We start filling in that ambiguity. If those two questions seem familiar, they're part of the 12 elements of employee engagement from Gallup, and they're basic needs that must be met before employees can sort of graduate to the next, next uh, level. And an example is question number two, I have the materials and equipment I need to do my work. That's one of the Gallup questions, which really tries to understand, is this person able to do their basic job day to day? So after we talked about biological needs, then if those needs are met, then the individual graduates upgrades to 2.0 extrinsic motivation. And one of the indicators of extrinsic motivation are when people are motivated by rewards and punishment or the carrot and stick. An example of this is a lot of healthcare uh, insurance agencies lose a lot of money whenever their members don't come in for the annual wellness visits. So what do they do? They send out gift cards to entice people to come into the office. And those gift cards are carrots, which are extrinsic motivation. Also, there's a lot of times when organizations, departments put up great programs in the department, like the lean board in front of you, but people just aren't motivated to participate. So they try to entice them to participate by offering things like pizza parties, which is an extrinsic motivator. It may get people to respond to that and fill things out on the board or give feedback or give their thoughts on how to implement standard work, but it doesn't change their intrinsic motivation because they're doing it to get that carrot or stick. You often see this a lot of times in offices, like on the office, when they do weight loss competitions. People struggle with intrinsic motivation to lose weight, so they look to others for that group feedback on how to lose that weight, and it becomes a competition. Another thing that's put out there for an extrinsic motivator is continuing edu education units. So what happens is people put on classes and they say, come on, get your CEUs. It's an important thing. I'm not debating that. But if that's the only enticement people have to come to a class, they're really only coming in for that extrinsic motivation as opposed to coming in for their intrinsic motivation. The second part of extrinsic motivation is relationship approval. If somebody is extrinsically motivated, then they're focused on other people's communication and approval. And it could be colleagues, which is fine, but if you're only focused on extrinsic relationship approval, then you never move to intrinsic motivation. Now, this is particularly relevant when a person in a position of power, a leader, spends time focused on relationships. If the person in the position of power in the leadership role is volatile or shows favorites or even says words like, I appreciate your help, it actually keeps people looking for more and more feedback. So if a leader says something simple like, thank you for staying late, I really appreciate it, what the leader is doing is actually focused on the relationship as opposed to the intrinsic motivation of the staff member who stayed late. One of the other Gallup questions talks about receiving feedback within seven days, positive feedback and recognition. And the reason why it's there is because our brain is often geared toward getting that feedback. And if we don't give it, get it after seven days, we crave more of it. But workplaces that focus only on gratitude and relationships never have their employees graduate to intrinsic motivation. And this can come up in the example I gave with the Godfather, but also if you have a physician who communicates a lot and really focuses on the relationship or a boss that does the same thing. And what happens is people end up filling out forms or 
looking at met metrics and chasing those things because that's really the check the box mentality. And it seems to be what's valued in the department as opposed to really focusing on intrinsic motivation. An example of this on the Gallup question is that work my opinions seem to count. And if people don't feel that their opinions seem to count at all, then they kind of go back to biological motivation because at some level, we actually crave that feedback, as I mentioned. And once we get that feedback, then we can think about upgrading to the third level of motivation, which is intrinsic motivation. So once our biological needs are met, our extrinsic motivation is met, then we graduate to intrinsic motivation. And one of the key points of somebody with intrinsic motivation is that they must know that they have autonomy. As human beings, we have choices. And the moment we feel our choices aren't there, we regress back to 2.0 or even 1.0. And the idea behind this is, and behind motivational interviewing is saying that everybody has a choice. So patients have a choice of having that muffin or that apple. Even people that are in court mandated drug and alcohol rehab programs have a choice. Do they attend or do they not? And what we find is, is that when people are more aware that they have choices, then they tend to really tie into their intrinsic motivation. So as a leader, as a boss, you have a lot of power in promoting autonomy with your employees. So if you say things like, well, this meeting is mandatory, then you're saying to that employee they don't have a choice. And if you're in a position of power, you're definitely taking away that perception of choice. And even things like, well, the meeting's not mandatory, but I really recommend you being there equates to taking away someone's choice. So some successful programs um, actually use the idea of choice when attending trainings and meetings. Essentially, they're advertised as optional and employees can choose if they find value in it or not. And you may think, well, if you do that, nobody may show up. And that could be a real concern. But if truly nobody is showing up to these classes and meetings, then maybe it's up to you as a presenter or facilitator to think about, what do I do about this check engine light? Does it, what does it say that's going on? And it's really up to you to decide, do you want to see and do a root cause to figure out why they're not attending? Why don't they find value? Is something else going on? Or do you put duct tape over it and pretend it's not happening? So as a leader, you're in a position of power and it's up to you to guide people toward their own self-efficacy. Once people have autonomy, one of the intrinsic motivators is mastery. Somebody who's intrinsically motivated really focuses on improving themselves. They do a lot of reading or learning outside of work, and it really helps them to build themselves up. It's actually one of the questions on Gallup that says, in the last six months, someone at work has talked with me about my progress. And it really shows that people that answer positively to this feel like they're learning and growing and working toward mastery. Finally, the third part of intrinsic motivation are people that are doing something because they're feeling like they're part of something bigger. And people that are focused on helping the community and giving back and working with an overall mission are people that are intrinsically motivated. People that feel intrinsically motivated to participate in the huddles and the lean, block, the lean board and participate even in this webinar are intrinsically motivated. And one of the things on the Gallup as well is focused on, do I have the opportunity to do what I do best every day or is there a disconnect? So I had the tips jar up in the very beginning of my presentation and it represents 
the two types of people that give tips. The first type is somebody who's intrinsically motivated, who's going to give money to that barista or waiter or whatever, because they truly want to give back to the community. The second type of person is extrinsically motivated, and they only put money in the tip jar when the person is looking. In other words, they're looking for that external relationship approval to give the tip. There's actually a Seinfeld episode where they talked about this. So extrinsic motivation, you're looking for approval. Intrinsic, you're doing because you want to help regardless if somebody sees you do it. So I want to pause there for a moment and give just a couple of minutes if there's any questions that I can answer right now before continuing. And Mark, I'll turn to you. Okay. Uh, we have not had any questions okay. come in. No problem. I will okay. continue on and just want to do a spot check. Okay. okay. Oh, actually, wait. Oh, <laughs> if it's all right. Um, here's a question. Uh, can I find a study with stats of using motivational interviewing versus traditional planning to improve patient compliance? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. Uh, there's actually quite a few different studies out there in different areas. Um, let me actually, Mark, if it's okay with you, I can actually make a couple references to some of those when I send you the information. Okay. Well, that we'll pass that along. Yeah. I'll do that and leave a note. And, and maybe let me kind of add a question to the question. Um, within motivational interviewing frameworks, um, thoughts on, on the word compliance versus other words? Yeah, so um, that's a great point, a great call out. And if anybody's listening on this call that actually has attended workshops with me, we actually <laughs> write that word on the board to say that's kind of a word that has sort of a, a certain meaning to it. It's sort of like um, if you were told, if anybody who was told, well, you weren't compliant with attending, you know, the meetings I set up, it, it kind of evokes a certain emotion. So the word compliance, just by its very nature, sort of almost looks at the deficit model as opposed to a strength-based model of an individual. And there's a couple of words like that, adherent, compliant, denial, that sort of indicate that. Um, what we like to use is instead of somebody's not, instead of a patient is not compliant with their medication regimen, saying that patient is struggling with following mm -hmm. their care plan. And really mm -hmm. it talks about the struggle and the person as an individual instead of a label. Great. There's one other question and then any other questions that come in, maybe we'll hold for the end. What's the alternative to providing positive feedback to an employee? And uh, it says in parentheses, driving extrinsic motivation. Yeah. So I think uh, part of this is really recognizing that um, extrinsic motivation is a step in the ladder. And if an employee is really after talking with them, you can tell that they are really looking for that feedback then it's an opportunity to give that feedback, but your ultimate goal is to get to 3.0. Now, there's another book um, off the top of my head called The Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace, and it's actually by the same author who talked about the five love languages, and he talks about that as individuals, we prefer a sort of, what's the word? We, we, we prefer sort of an um, acknowledgement of the work we've done, and again, it's extrinsic motivation. Um, off the top of my head, their uh, time spent, um, there's, there's a few of them. I can send a link to that as well. And really understanding what, how does this person like to be thanked for their work in Motivation 2.0? So, for instance, there's some admin uh, folks who I work with who I ask them, like, what is the language that they prefer? Because they get a lot of gifts 
But they said, actually, we don't want the gifts. We want just sort of a word of affirmation of our work. So it's really understanding individuals and understanding what is their extrinsic 2.0. And then once you meet that need, think about ways to move out of intrinsic motivation. So the example I gave, and then we can continue on before about the employee who stayed late to enter in data, let's just say, if the employee, we'll call him Bob, stays late to enter in data, the boss says, thank you for staying late, I appreciate it, that's focused on extrinsic motivation. If that employee stays late, and, Bob, and if Bob stays late and the manager says, you really are dedicated to our company, that is focused on the employee's intrinsic motivation toward their purpose. So saying, instead of thank you, saying, you really are dedicated to our company, the boss is actually calling out the employee's intrinsic motivation. And that is how you start stepping into having the employee think, oh, yeah, I am focused on the overall purpose and my intrinsic motivation. Okay. So thanks for uh, reframing those questions, Mark. Sure thing. All right. So going back, we talked a bit about the engaging step of motivational interviewing, sort of really everything we talked about, really understanding and meeting another person where they are, whether it's a patient or a frontline staff member, really understanding where are they with motivation? What do they appreciate? What's even driving them to get to work? I was a few years ago actually walking around um, in a hospital system uh, in a radiology department and I was walking around with one of the leaders and we were, he was just showing me the different areas of um, kind of behind the scenes with the different uh, analysis that goes on there with the computers. And there was two folks that were sitting there who had worked there for at least five years. And I just said to the one woman, I said, so tell me what, what motivates you to be here? And she said, I really like puzzles. I really like the idea of putting together all these different parts of everything I'm seeing in the computer to make sense of it. I asked the other gentleman, what, why are you here? What gets you up to come to work? And he said, I'm really here because I'm here for the patients and I feel like I'm doing my small part. So just stopping for a few seconds, asking people what motivates them was powerful. What was more powerful is after that tour, the leader of the department said to me, I had no idea that's why they were here. So it really shows that even well-meaning leaders sometimes don't take the time to sit there and really understand and engage what is motivating somebody to be there or get up in the morning or do what they're doing. So engaging is really about understanding people. And when we look at behavior change, uh, my colleague, Brittany Wilson, who I work with actually created this, she talks about there's three parts of change. Now the importance and confidence is part of motivational interviewing, but she added the knowledge part of it. And it says that for somebody to make a change, they have to have the knowledge and find the change important and confident to make the change. Whether it's somebody who's exercising, somebody who's struggled a lot with exercise in their life, and now they find that they're close to 80 years, 80 years old, do they have the knowledge and put the importance and confidence on making the change? And as we look particularly at the knowledge, we'll talk about importance and confidence in a minute, the knowledge part of it is very important especially as you look at the human brain. I mentioned earlier, we only really retain about 20% of what we're immediately told. There's a lot of evidence that shows that 40 to 80% of what patients are told are forgotten immediately. So immediately after being told this, it goes in their short-term memory for a few seconds and then leaves. And on top of that, when asked to recall things later, 50% of that information was recalled incorrectly by the patients. So really spending a lot of time with 
understanding the patient's knowledge and recognizing as humans, we have deficits in knowledge and memory. And without the knowledge, the rest of the change can't happen. But it's not just about knowledge, it's also about importance and confidence, the other parts of motivational interviewing and motivation we're talking about today. So when we look at, for instance, coming into to your uh, annual visits, does that patient on the screen, they may have the knowledge and say that, you know what, I understand the reasons why I need to come in to get my um, everything checked, blood pressure, everything else, but I don't really think it's that important because I'm healthy. So they have the knowledge and they may have the confidence, but they verbalized that they didn't have the importance, so they don't come in. Or you may have somebody who tests their blood sugar at home. They may have the knowledge of the importance of doing it. They actually think it's really important, but their confidence is low because they feel like they're not doing it right or they won't remember, so the change doesn't happen. Taking your medication is a huge part of it. We find a lot of patients actually want to take their medicine but their confidence is really low in how they're going to remember to take it. And when it comes to the workplace, we may have people saying, I think it's really important that I document in the charts, but I'm here till nine o'clock at night. I don't have the confidence I can do it. When it comes to policies and procedures, we may have a frontline employee who says, I'm really confident I could follow this thing. I have the knowledge of what it is, but I don't agree with it. So I don't find it's important. So that change triangle, importance, confidence, and knowledge must be there before somebody makes a change. So for people listening in, what do you think is your team's biggest barrier to activation? And now it's a rhetorical question, but do you know if they're not following through with processes and policies or even participation, is there barrier knowledge, importance, or confidence? And the question is, how do you find out? How do you uncover that? Well, the biggest thing is, is listen. Express empathy. We talk about kids, for instance, in a lot of our workshops and the kid who falls and skins their knee. Our first reaction as adults is to say, you're okay. But what we're really telling that kid who fell and skinned their knee is, you're okay and your feelings don't matter. We're telling the kid who's crying and in pain, you're not really in pain, you're okay. We're not acknowledging their feelings and we're not listening. We also have people in our lives who, whenever we're struggling with something, let's just say we're struggling with our job, they say things like, well, at least you have a job. They try to put a silver lining on things. Listening is one of those things that's easy to learn, but really hard to master. We often don't listen when we try to dump a lot of information. I talked earlier about the planning stage on people, whether that's data or whether it's saying you know what, you're struggling with your work and taking this in, but keep in mind you're part of a bigger company. We shut people down by not listening and telling them why they should feel grateful or why they should change. And what we do is we don't listen to them. And what uh, Miller and Rolnick call it is the writing reflex. We essentially have an immediate reflex to tell people why they're wrong and why they should think differently. And what it does is it causes people to shut down even below the engaging stage of motivational interviewing. I have a short 30 second video that some people may have seen. It really demonstrates what happens when these two people are talking and the gentleman doesn't listen at first, but then afterwards starts to really pay attention. So let's listen for 30 seconds. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless. And I don't 
don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. You have a nail in your head. It's not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop they... trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail. See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just. Sometimes it's like there's this achy, I don't know what it is, and I'm not sleeping very well at all, and all my sweaters are snagged, I mean, all of them. So, quick demonstration of sort of this gentleman, and how many of you on the call related to this guy? I just want to say, I want to pull this nail out of your head. And we're fixers. We try to get it there, and we try to fix people. And in reality, when we try to do that, people say, you're just not listening to me. It wasn't until he expressed empathy and said, that must be really hard, that she said, yeah, it is, and connected with him. And when we hear things that patients say, things like, I've been feeling better, so I've stopped taking my pills, we may have an immediate need to give our writing reflex and tell them why they should take their pills. When we hear an employee say, I don't really care about this job, I'm only here to get a paycheck, we wanna say, well, what do you mean? Aren't you here for the patients? When we hear an employee say, I get that we have to fix our office problems, but this lean thing is just another flavor of the month, I'm tired of all these changes, we wanna tell people, no, it's different, that's our writing reflex. And when people hear that, they shut down. And if all of this seems like therapy, like we really wanna to get to people's feelings, there is an element of getting people's feelings. But it's more than that, because if we only focus on getting people's feelings, we get lost in the field of weeds as they talk and talk, which it's okay, but we can't take that in. The purpose of motivational interviewing is to guide them after the engaging phase and focus the conversation toward the ultimate behavior change. And that state of ambivalence, as I talked about earlier, which is really between sustained talk, sustaining their current behavior, and change talk. The goal of motivational interviewing is to recognize, acknowledge sustained talk, but guide people toward talking more about change. And the idea behind this is, is that human beings, the more we can verbalize something, the more likely we're able to follow through with it. So the encounter with a patient or the encounter with a staff member, the goal is for you to have them talk more about change talk and less about sustained talk. So sustained talk, there's lots of different categories for it, but generally speaking, somebody who's talking about sustained talk is talking about the positives of their current unhealthy behavior or and or the negatives of change. So as an example, I feel like I need to run because I need to get into my other genes but it's really hard to go running after work, especially after giving a webinar. So my sustained talk was talking about how difficult it is to make the change. The positive side, the change talk, are talking about the negatives of our current behavior or the positives of change. So when I talked earlier, when I said about I wanna change because I need to fit into those other genes, I talk about the positives of change. And my goal is to talk more about the positives. And it's your role, if you're my um, coach or mentor to help me talk more about the positives. 
Um, I have a, actually, this video is definitely 58 seconds and it's with Dr. Marcus Welby and it really demonstrates change talk that comes from within the patient. And we're gonna briefly talk about that. Can you explain it? I've checked you thoroughly. You don't have any physical disorders to blame those pounds on. And your mother swears she keeps you on that diet at home. Shall I tell you why you're heavier? You've been cheating. Sneaking things into your mouth. Candy, soda pop, pizza, munch, chump, gobble. You make it sound ugly. Isn't there something you could give me? I read a magazine about these pills that kill your appetite. Young pills. Well, what about hypnosis? Kimberly, there is no substitute for willpower. And unless you supply some, you'll go through life as a jolly fat girl. That's a mean thing to say. I'm sorry, I have no sympathy to waste on self-indulgent children. I want to see you back here a week today. And you better be thinner. So, Dr. Marcus Welby, traditional healthcare approach, do this, it's bad. Healthcare, health, the way you're eating is bad. And the patient actually had elements of change talk. She talked about how she was looking at pills and hypnosis. Is that the most appropriate treatment? I don't know. But the point is, is that she had change talk. She wanted to make changes. And instead of having her talk more about it, Dr. Marcus Welby shut her down and ridiculed her. So when we go back to what was said before, I get that we have to fix our office problems, but this lean thing is just another flavor of the month. I'm tired of all these changes. The sustained talk is them talking about the frustration and it's hard to make changes, the difficulties with change. The, that was the sustained talk. The change talk is that I get that we have to fix our office problems. So in other words, this person is identifying the negatives of the status quo. So a leader would, the opportunity is to have them talk more about what's wrong with the office and think about that. And that's the evoking stage of motivational interviewing. Now, oftentimes, if you've heard about motivational interviewing, you've heard the skill set, the oars, and we're not going to delve into that, except for to mention that the open-ended question is something that could be helpful in getting people to talk. Of course, reflections and being with somebody in the moment is the actually the key skill, but open-ended questions are a way to get people to think differently. The reason why we don't spend the whole time talking about the skills is because if you just take the skills and use it, then you become like a used car salesman without understanding the philosophy behind it. The philosophy behind evoking, and I credit my mentor, Mia Croyle from Wisconsin for this, she talks about patients and individuals. We typically look at people at a deficit. We look at them as a glass half full of water, and we say to them, you know what, there's something wrong with you, you're at a deficit, I'm gonna fill you up with motivation. That's the traditional model. Motivational interviewing says is that people are more like a well and the water's already inside of them. It's up to us to pull that water, that motivation up to the surface. And then they have a chance to really see what makes them shine and they can think about the future. So when you think of things like vaping, it's easy to focus on the deficit and that's bad for you and you shouldn't do that as opposed to the positive side of that is is somebody's vaping is choosing to make a step away from smoking. And if you've ever seen uh, at conferences and meetings, people take half a cookie, we could ridicule and say they're really not on their diet. Or we could say the fact that they actually took a moment to take half a cookie so they don't eat the whole thing shows that they're on a positive. Just like the healthcare workers who feel overwhelmed but are still dedicated to the patient, they're still focused on the patient and that's the positive. So it's really about using open-ended questions to evoke from them their thoughts on what are your thoughts on how to improve or 
What would help you the most? So for that employee, how can we better meet the needs of our patients? Stopping and asking them to picture what that future is before dumping planning down their throat gives them a chance to envision that. And finally, I want to mention about a framework called Elicit Provide Elicit, which is stopping and asking somebody, what do you already know about this new policy or what are your feelings on lean? Once you ask them, you provide it in a non-judgmental way, and then you step in and ask them again, what are your thoughts? So I just want to talk about all of that. And again, this is a very, very high level overview. And none of this is meant to be a magic trick. You can try to use some of these things if you'd like. I'm going to send out some uh, information later that you can reference. And I've heard many people say that it takes about 300 hours of competent practice to become adept at motivational interviewing. So it's not about just using these tips and tricks. It's about thinking about what are we really talking about with looking at the other person from a strength-based approach. And in my past, in, in my current job, I spent a lot of time coaching people in real-time situations as they're either talking to patients or staff members giving direct feedback. We also have, I also put on other learning opportunities, um, either eight-minute overviews, 20-minute overviews, forums, workshops, on different topics related to this, everything from cultivating confidence, accepting anger, brainstorming, brain bursting, emotional intelligence. So that was from ambivalence to action, a very high level overview. Uh, my email's there and obviously that'll be included as well. So I'm gonna turn this back over to Mark uh, for some announcements and then some final Q&A. Okay, thank you, Mark. Um... Yeah, it's funny you, you talk about taking half a cookie. I am very much that person who takes half a cookie um, or, or maybe less. It's a lesson I learned. Um, there's a, a psychologist, Robert Moore from UCLA, who's written a number of books about Kaizen. And he talks about um, kind of you know a different path to, let's say, I don't want to eat cookies at conferences. He says there's the baby steps incremental approach of the first uh, approach would be tearing off a bite and throwing it away, then eating the rest of the cookie and then working your way to having half a cookie. And then maybe you're working your way down to just have a bite. And then you might be able to then say, okay, no cookie for me, which I, I think is a different, different approach. But to your point, and as we get into the Q and a on motivational interviewing, we could, we could spend more time talking about what are my motivations to not eat the cookie to, to work through that ambivalence I might have, right? That's right. That's exactly right. So it's a great um, coincidental analogy. Yeah. So um, if you can advance uh, the slides, we'll do a couple quick announcements. So we have our upcoming webinars on our next presentation webinar will be October 15th, presented by Paul Wainwright about learning to embrace positive deviance. And if that's not a phrase you're familiar with, I would encourage you, um, it, you it's safe to Google that. It's uh, really about um, devia uh, deviating in, in a positive way, deviating from the way we've done things today, or, or maybe I'll, I'll ask Mark to share a little bit about that phrase. But it's going to be October 15th, um, and you can register for that at kinexus.com slash webinars. And then our CEO and co-founder, Dr. Greg Jacobson, and I will be doing our next Ask Us Anything webinar on October 28th. You can also sign up for that uh, today at kinexus.com slash webinars. Let me tell you about some other resources. We have all of our past webinars in the on-demand library, which you can find again at kinexus.com slash webinars. And on the right-hand side, look for uh, the link to the on-demand library. Mark's session today will also be archived there. 
So I encourage you to check out that great library. You can also get, uh, see our blog at blog.kinexus.com. Then the final thing I want to mention is the Kinexus podcast. And the audio, as I mentioned earlier, the audio of today's webinar will be there in the podcast feed along with uh, a lot of other stuff. We put the Ask Us Anythings there. Um, we, we're currently doing a series of discussions with Kinexus employees about why did they join Kinexus. So you can find that in all the typical places you would find podcasts. And so with that, we've got Mark's uh, email address there on screen. And um, we'll look at some questions here. Um, let's see, Sandra, I'm going to just ask verbally, can, can you, you clarified the question, but I, I lost track of the original question that you had asked. Um, oh, no, it was about age. Or, or maybe, Sandra, if you could type, type that full question again. Um, Fred was asking, can you show the slide with the yellow words again? And if, if it's not easy for you to jump back, that, that's the triangle? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, okay, that's easy enough. Well, let's go back to. And then I had a question maybe while that's up. Um, and then we'll come back to Sandra's question. So it's, it's kind of a, a half question, half commentary to get your thoughts on Mark. Um, if we look at importance, confidence, and knowledge, mm -hmm. in, in my experience, it seems that many organization lean efforts really focus on shoving knowledge into people's heads without really addressing importance or confidence. Or we try to tell people this is important instead of asking them why it's important. What, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that that's a great point. I think um, in, in most in most organizations, there's this sort of this, okay, I'm in a position of power, I'm a leader, I have a lot of great information to give out and sort of the expert position. I feel like if I could just give this to people, they really buy into the idea that lean or continuous quality improvement can really improve their lives. And well-intentioned leaders end up just sort of pulling together some really beautiful graphs and information and just hope to sort of persuade people. But human beings, we just don't like to be told what to do. And, you know, oftentimes we are resentful because we think, you know, we actually already buy into this. You don't need to tell us something. And an example that I like to give oftentimes is cell phone uh, texting and driving. Um, I often actually do that as a real life exercise in some of my classes where I say, I know that texting and driving is dangerous, but I only look down for a few seconds when I'm on the road. And what happens is people in the class say, well, wait a second, don't you know it only takes a few seconds? And, and my response is, yeah, I do know that. I'm just struggling with doing it. And then they say, well, don't you know it's illegal in Pennsylvania? And it's just our human tendency just to try to bombard and persuade people with knowledge without actually stopping and asking someone, how do they feel about texting and driving? What do they know? What are, the, what are their experiences? And oftentimes in my past, when I've approached um, organizations, I've worked with chronic conditions, self-management teams, approaching a new organization, you know, the traditional way would be, hey, here's a bunch of information on why you should use our team. But in reality, I'd like to start off with, tell me a bit about you and your struggles with patients who are, who are having difficulties managing their chronic condition. So I think it's coming up with some great questions in the beginning to really gauge somebody's importance and confidence before you start immediately assuming that they're at a knowledge deficit. 
And and Fred actually clarified, and he he meant the uh, the slide with the ascending words with the the oh, diagonal yeah. arrow. I think. Absolutely, no problem. I have a 160 slots, so I get I get it. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so let's see. So we've got another question here, and Sandra, please um, correct me if I, I didn't follow. So she, I think she was asking, is age a factor? in the use or effectiveness of motivational interviewing, of, of talking about patients or families, sons or daughters, talking about motivation? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. You know, so I'm gonna give um, two different, two answers here that are related. One, um, I'm not personally a huge fan of labeling by background, age, you know, et cetera. I, you know, actually one of the, actually have a class that I teach called Rethinking Generations in the Workplace. And so it's less about sort of labeling age, et cetera. Now, cognitive abilities obviously, you know, can impact anybody as, you know, people know. So it's less about, it's more about putting away any assumptions you have about anybody based on age, gender, et cetera. And, and, it, and I think it, in, it's not even just that, right? It's, it's individual patients. Just because a patient was doing well last year and taking their medicine doesn't mean that they're doing the same thing now. So it's looking at every encounter with somebody as a curious conversation to understand more about them. So that being said, you know, there's oftentimes when I've worked with people who, you know, the patient, you know, maybe 51 years old and they're struggling with some things, but in reality, that patient's spouse is the one who's really helping the patient manage. And, and it turns into a conversation with the spouse on guiding their behavior to help the patient. It becomes a little complicated. I've worked with um, parents before on helping kids change their behavior as well. So I guess my bottom line is, is look at each individual as an individual without assumptions, even assuming past conversations, and really pay attention to what they're saying and ask yourself, what do I want this patient, this individual to do differently? And if it's a family member, sometimes the goal is to help them help the patient towards self-efficacy. Yeah. And so Sandra did a follow-up. Um, so age is not really a relevant factor. I, I, I would agree with that blanket statement. <laughs> okay. I guess it's a relevant factor as much as yeah. geography, culture, I mean, anything else that makes the, us the wonderfully complex individuals we are. And it's really about understanding as much as we can the individual. Okay, here's another question. Um, what you said about empathy was really interesting and it made me think a little bit when we talk about people in the workplace being resistant to change, are we showing a lack of empathy toward them? That was a fantastic point, whoever brought that up. Um, it's funny because in the third edition of motivational interviewing, they actually got rid of the word resistance. And rolling with resistance was sort of an older term that they use because resistance in of itself is one of those labeling words. So they actually um, broke down the word resistance into two parts. One is sustained talk. In other words, I'm mm -hmm. communicating why I want to sustain behavior. The other part is discord in the relationship. So if I'm telling you, I don't want to check my diet, I don't want to check my blood sugar because I just don't want to do it, that's sustained talk. But if I say, I don't want to check my blood sugar because you can't tell me what to do and you don't know me, mm. that's discord in the relationship. So that's what they choose. And, and both of those probably exist in a lot of workplace scenarios. That's right. You that's right, exactly. So another question, um, can MI help with creating a standard customer service definition for our organization? Yeah, that, that's, a, 
That's a great question. So, um, you know, as always, it's, it's, you know, as working with the frontline employee who are closest to the customers, it's the same philosophy that I know that folks on this call buy into is that frontline worker is the person who does the job, so has a great insight. MI is just a framework in really, really activating this people to share their ideas and their innovation. So absolutely, it's just a framework for doing what you believe in anyway, which is getting the frontline perspective. It's just tools to be able to do it more effectively and efficiently. And I think that's another point I would bring up is oftentimes when people start learning motivational interviewing, they say, geez, I don't really have time to do psychotherapy with patient or with the uh, staff members. But if you do this effectively and ask the right questions and reflect the change talk and, and just empathize, the conversations I find actually become more effective because people feel heard and you don't have to keep having the same conversations over and over again. Yeah. And, and I'll just give a, a bit of an endorsement for what it's worth is I've learned motivational interviewing. I, I was fixated for a while and saying like, well, I've got to find formal opportunities where I can have this kind of coaching conversation using MI frameworks. And, and I found that that very rarely happens. But what I found really helpful are I think some of the high level points, again, of really reframing or, or trying to be better about like when I detect, um, you know, the, uh, an employee is being blamed for being resistant and to really kind of, if, if you will, to borrow the Sheryl, Sheryl Sandberg phrase, lean in and have a conversation and, and really try to understand that person's perspectives and realizing that that symptom of resistance is, is something that shouldn't lead to a label and, and casting them aside or disengaging, it's it's all the more reason um, that that's the starting point of a conversation where a lot of times people can then work their way into choosing to change. That that's that's one of the mindsets I've tried to embrace. That that seems to be a lesson for motivational interviewing. That's great. That's a great connection back to that. And and the one thing I'll add is. Um, in organizations in the past, at least I've been involved with, where this is effectively done with employees, we actually have seen uh, their satisfaction go up through their just feedback on the Gallup surveys and other sort of satisfaction feedbacks, in addition to active intrinsic participation in workshops that have all been optional. Okay, maybe one last question here as we're getting back to the top of the hour. Um, you talked about scenarios of helping people change and and thinking about what we want them to do. And there might be alignment between the doctor and the patient wanting the patient to lose weight, even if the patient is ambivalent. But what about workplace scenarios where there might not be a shared agreement on what we need to do? In other words, the boss wants employees to do something and the employees don't think it's important. What, what would you suggest? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. I think I think part of the, I would say the big part of this is recognizing that the more we push people, the more they kind of recoil and become resentful and get less into engagement. So a big part of motivational interviewing, and I can speak to my experience, was just accepting that no matter how hard we want people to do things, if we tell if we take away their autonomy and make them feel they don't have choice, then we never move forward. It's really about using these skills. And I mentioned the 300 hours of practice of really just sort of expressing empathy and listening. And if we listen at first and say, well, I need you to do this, 
then we go back toward the bottom of engaging. So this is about acceptance philosophy and trying some of the skills. And the thing I'll say more kind of we're wrapping up is that that's why I teach all these other classes on emotional intelligence, on effective apologies and all these other things, because it all rolls up into the way we communicate and the way we promote autonomy and partnership to get people activated. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you, Mark. Our, our presenter has been Mark Valenti. Um, we have one more question that came in, Mark. I will email that to you okay. and, and make a connection um, to try to get back privately. But um, I re really want to thank you for um, a, a well-planned out, well-executed presentation. Um, I wanted to learn and, and refresh and, and, and kind of deepen my understanding of motivational interviewing. And I also found um, the, the approach you took with the slides uh, to be an ed education in and of itself and, and a great Great example. So um, again, our presenter today has been Mark Valenti. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, Mark. It's my pleasure and I'm intrinsically motivated, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad we could tap into that intrinsic motivation. And if uh, people in the audience uh, are intrinsically motivated to register for future webinars, I'd invite you to do so at www.kinexus.com slash webinar. So on behalf of the entire Kinexus team, we want to thank you all for attending and for being part of our community. Uh, this has been Mark Graben, and uh, we'll see you next time.